We need a Savior, one who impacts our lives and leads and guides and directs us and answers our prayers and forgives our sins and picks us up when we get it wrong and enables us to walk with Him again. All of that is wrapped up in those opening words, I believe. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. prepare for the reading and preaching of the word, let us turn to God in prayer. Mighty God, whose ways are not our ways, 
and whose wisdom is beyond the grasp of our little minds. Grant now by the power of your spirit that through the reading and preaching of your word, we who have not seen may come to believe and in believing have life eternal. In the name of the risen, crucified Christ, amen. Here a reading from the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. Listen to the word of God. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here ends the reading of Holy Scripture. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is, for me, always a special service. And as you know, I have been practicing the accent for several weeks, so I get it just right, just right. It's a delight to welcome the St. Andrew's Society and Porter. Please give our thanks to the St. Andrew's Society. Assure them of our support. Uh, gentlemen, you do an outstanding service to the upstate, and we are very grateful that you've joined us this morning. Thank you. Whenever I was preparing for this morning, as many of you know, folks in the congregation uh, at this time of year say how much they're looking forward to the Kirking of the Tartan service. And then, of course, you feel obliged to send me all of your Scottish jokes in the week leading up to the service. So thank you for that. Uh, but the one at the top of the list this year is this. About 50 years ago in Edinburgh, a man died somewhat suddenly but peacefully in his sleep, and his wife approached the newspaper to print up the obituary the following morning. And when she met with the editor, the editor said, well, madam, do you have a figure in mind in terms of spending on his obituary? And she said, well, actually, I don't want to waste any money, and so I have five pounds set aside for the obituary. And he said, well, I'm sorry to say five pounds will not get you too much, but write out for me what you were thinking. And she said, well, I wanted it to be brief, but nonetheless insightful. And he said, well, write out what you're thinking. And she wrote out, Peter Reed now did. 
And he said, Madam, I think we can do a little better than that. Are there a few more words you could get in there for your five pounds? She said, well, allow me to start again. Peter Reed now did golf clubs for sale. <laughs> That's how to save money in the newspaper right there. Now, humor works, and it works well when we can't see the end coming, as we illustrated moments ago. And in the passage which Alan read to us moments ago, the context was that of a week after Easter Sunday. And Thomas had not been there on Easter Sunday, and he refuses to believe. And that sets the context for our passage. But before we come to our passage, let me bring you up to date a little in this sense that this is our first Sunday exploring together the Apostles' Creed. And we printed it out and put it in your worship folder this morning. So if you have it, take it out of your worship folder, put it in John 20 as a marker, because today begins that first study. And this morning we're focusing on those two opening words, I believe. And as we begin our study this morning, the question, of course, in our minds is this, Richard, why would we begin a study on the Apostles' Creed? It just somehow seems archaic, out of date, and it doesn't really say too much in a world that is dominated by smartphones and iPads and Google and Twitter. Why on earth are we looking at the Apostles' Creed? Well, if we are considering minimizing or marginalizing the words of the Apostles' Creed, perhaps we should do it with some other well-known words as well. Should we perhaps marginalize and minimize these words? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Would we seek to marginalize and minimize those words? Or perhaps there's other words. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. There are some things much more important than Google and smartphones and Twitter. These are things we hold as a nation to be self-evident. These are the things that many of our ancestors came to this nation for, and we hold them dear. They are sacred to us. And likewise, in a similar way, the Apostles' Creed. Where did it come from? Who were the original framers? We don't know, but what we do know is this, that the Apostles' Creed are words that all Christians in every tradition and every denomination hold dear. We have them as a centerpiece of our worship. It's an expression of the heart. It's an act of faith. 
an act of devotion to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they first came about, historians tell us, because the gospel impacted individual lives, and then families, and then communities, and then states and regions, and across the Roman Empire, began, we began to see a Christianity that was exciting, transformational. It brought us into intimacy with the living God. And people began to say, what is it that those Christians actually believe? And so there was a need for a clear, concise statement an authoritative statement that would reflect the apostolic teaching that we find in Scripture and that congregations could use to identify who they were. The Apostles' Creed is not so much something we say, it's not so much an activity, but it's part of our identity. And so this morning, with all of that in mind, let us come to those opening words that are also reflected in John's gospel. I have to say that when I was preparing uh, a series on the Apostles' Creed for our Wednesday lunchtime and Bible study class last fall, the thing that caught me by surprise were the opening words. The other words I was familiar with. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, and the temptation when we come to say the Apostles' Creed is to jump over the opening words. But it was the opening words that caught my imagination once again. And the opening words don't say, we believe. They don't say, Christians believe. They don't say, as a community, we believe. But what they say is this. I believe. It's a point of commitment. It's an expression of adoration, one of praise. I believe. And that was the question for John. A week after Easter. Now remember the historical context of the gospel narrative. The passage begins with these words. Thomas called Didymus. And it's right there in brackets. And it means twin. Thomas was his Hebrew name, his Greek name, Didymus, twin. Now we know, of course, some of the relationships between the other apostles. We have James and John. James and John, brothers. I'm always amazed to read those words when it says, James and John, the sons of thunder. And I think, wow, I'm not sure I'd like to live next door to the sons of thunder. I kind of imagine that they were members of a biker gang with on the back the sons of thunder. And I think, I'm not sure I'd like to know them that well. But Thomas's twin is not mentioned. And this is pure speculation on my behalf, but I wonder this. If Thomas, growing up with his brother or sister, so fond of each other, so affectionate, holding each other in deep love as only brothers and sisters can, and since there's no mention of the twin, I wonder 
if sadly Thomas's twin had passed away. And I can't help wonder if Thomas, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, was wrestling with grief and doubt. He wasn't there with the other disciples on Easter Sunday evening when Jesus came that first time. He wasn't there. Why? Was Thomas overwhelmed with grief and bereavement and sadness? Was he seeking solitude and isolation and comfort, consolation off on his own? And if he was, I wonder if he began to ask the deep questions, those questions that keep you up in the early hours of the night when you discover a spouse is dying, a child is terminally ill, someone you know and love has been taken, and you begin to ask, Father, where are you in the middle of all of this? Why on earth would you do such a thing? And I wonder if Thomas, overwhelmed with grief, is saying, Father, not again. Please, not again. He was there at the stilling of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000. He was there to watch Jesus bring Lazarus back to life. And now he's been taken, arrested, tried, crucified, dead, and buried. And now the others were making up this story. Why would they do such a thing? Could anyone ever be so cruel as to pretend someone was alive when everyone knows they are dead? Why would they do such a thing? Now, hold that thought for a moment, and let's come all the way forward to the 21st century. And you may be here this morning and saying, Richard, I appreciate all that you're saying. I understand the contextual backdrop of the gospel narrative. I've got that. But you're right in this sense. Whenever I'm at a worship service, and I only come maybe Christmas and Easter and three or four times a year, and I'm asked to say the Apostles' Creed, I kind of find that hard. Because I'm not sure where I stand in my faith. My family believe, my children believe, my wife has a real faith, but oh, I'm not so sure if you pinned me down, if you put me in a corner and said, now what do you believe? Honestly, I would have to say that Christianity feels a little like a fairy tale. It's a bit like believing in the tooth fairy. I'm just not sure. Now, if that's where you are this morning, allow me to probe a little further, if I may. Because I'm not sure I have ever met an adult who has come to faith in the tooth fairy. I'm not. I don't know any group of people, 
anywhere in the world who will gather in small groups on a Sunday morning and bring worship and adoration and prayer and praise and talking about the tooth fairy transforming their lives and answering their prayers and seeing lives changed. I don't know of any. So, if we're going to compare genuine faith with plausible excuse, let's lose, use our intellect. Let's explore. Let's go deeper. Now, come back with me again to the story of Thomas. And notice what happens when Jesus comes probably to the same upper room a week later. And he says to the disciples, notice what are the first words in the text. He says, peace be with you. And he doesn't say Thomas, front and center. Come on, come on, you should know better. He doesn't say that. With great concern and compassion, he says, Thomas, put your hand here. Put your hand there. I don't think Thomas was cynical in refusing to believe. I think Thomas was realistic. And Thomas refused to go along. He would not say, praise the Lord anyway. He wouldn't do that. He was honest in his doubts, honest in his fears. And with great compassion, Christ says to him, Thomas, put your fingers here and here. Now, there are two truths that Thomas has to engage with. And the first is this, that before him stands the risen Christ back from the dead. And if that is not enough, if that is not overwhelming enough, the second reality Thomas has to deal with is this. And when Jesus says to him, put your hand here and here, he is saying, Thomas, I'm very much aware of your conversations with the others. And Thomas realizes what's going on. He realizes that Christ could hear those previous conversations. And I think at that point, the penny finally drops for Thomas. He realizes that when the Messiah stood in the boat in the Sea of Galilee and said, be still, peace, that only God could command nature to obey Him. Only God could bring Lazarus back from the grave. Only God could feed the 5,000. And the penny finally drops. I imagine, at least in my mind, instead of putting his finger in the wounds of the hands and the side, he takes him by the hand and falls on his knees and holds his hand to his head and says, my Lord and my God. He gets it. He believes. And what happens there is this. This is no longer intellectual assent. This is no longer, well, I know it feels right, 
but there is a submission of the heart and the mind and the will and the soul, and it moves him to worship, unadulterated worship of the risen Christ. That's what's happening here. And when we say, I believe, that's what we are saying. Your forefathers may have come from Germany or Italy or Russia or Norway or England or Latin America or Mexico or Scotland, and they came seeking a better life. Great-grandparents and grandparents and parents, some coming with a living faith, praying and utterly, profoundly depending on God to lead and guide and direct them others coming to this nation and discovering some of our core values as a nation. In God we trust, not by accident, not by chance, not because it's the nice thing to do, but we have felt His touch, moved by His grace, transformed by His love. And that is why we say, I believe. And when we say, I believe, we're not saying we've got it right all the time. We're not saying we're perfect people. We're never saying we don't sin. In fact, we're saying the opposite. In saying, I believe, we freely confess we need a Savior, not just an example, not just a good teacher, not just a miracle worker. We need a Savior one who impacts our lives and leads and guides and directs us and answers our prayers and forgives our sins and picks us up when we get it wrong and enables us to walk with Him again. All of that is wrapped up in those opening words, I believe. And so this morning, as we come to draw our study to a close, we can say, like parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and all of the heritage we celebrate today, we can say with them and with Thomas, leaving here with the words resounding in our ears, my Lord and my God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank You for our time together this morning. We thank You for the wonder and reality of Your Word which speaks to us and fashions and shapes us. Father, for those of us who are struggling this morning, for those of us who are hurting, those of us who are wrestling with the festering wounds of doubt and disappointment and dismay, we ask that You would wrap Your arms of love and grace around them and tenderly and gently draw them to Yourself and restore in them the wonder and the joy and the ability to say, I believe. Father, bless us, please, not only today, but in all the weeks to come. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Hargrove, and I'm the Ignite Worship Service Pastor here at First Presbyterian Church. And at Ignite, we like to do four things. We call them the four C's. One, we want to be Christ-centered and Christ-focused. Secondly, we want to build community. That means we connect with each other in the service as well as outside the service. Third, we want to celebrate what God is doing among us. And fourth, we want to be connectional, connecting the Bible to everyday life as we go live, work, play, and stay in this community. So come at 1045 on Sundays to experience at night and see what God is doing with and among us.